Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. About a third of people who leave religious faith do so because of skepticism and doubt. Over a third of young adult Christians feel they cannot ask their most pressing questions in church. And over a third of young adult Christians also feel that Christians are too confident that they have all the answers to difficult and thorny questions. Add these numbers and something becomes very clear and very sad. Doubt makes people abandon faith. But people don't abandon faith because they have doubts. People abandon faith because they think they're not allowed to have doubts. People abandon faith because intentionally or unintentionally, they've been forced into an impossible, unbiblical, binary choice. You can have your faith or you can have doubts, but you can't have both. My guest, Austin Fisher, challenges those assumptions in his new book, Faith in the Shadows, Finding Christ's in the midst of doubt. Austin is the lead pastor at Vista Community Church in Temple, Texas, and the author previously of Young, Restless, No Longer Reformed. His new book, Faith in the Shadows, is a great read. We had a great conversation about it. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Austin Fisher. Austin, welcome to the podcast. Oh man, it is a pleasure and a privilege to be on. You are a pastor in Texas. I am. Uh, about an hour in between both Austin and Waco on I-35. Uh, born and bred in East Texas, but moved uh, a little bit west about 10 years ago for college. Is Tyler East Texas? It is. Deep East Texas, yeah. Bitter rival. I've been to Tyler. I've been to Tyler. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I've only been to Texas a few times, but I've, I've liked it. Now, you, you're raised there. You're a pastor in Texas. You've written a book called Faith in the Shadows, Finding Christ in the Midst of Doubt. Now, you are in a red state that is, despite kind of trends in certain parts of the country and Western Europe and Australia, things like that, people have this perception that, that faith is not waning as much in Texas. So why is a guy like who's a pastor in the Bible Belt writing a book about doubt? I mean, that you see people like on the coasts or in Chicago, you see them dealing with congregants that are plagued with doubt, but, but people stereotypically are thinking the Bible Belt, I mean, happens there too? Oh, it happens everywhere so far as I can tell. Um, throughout, you know, really all of church history, um, and that's one of the things I try to bring out in the book, is Christianity has a really long tradition of what I would call faithful doubters, people who teach us how to doubt faithfully. And so, I, absolutely, man, uh, just because Texas is a red state doesn't mean it's a bunch of, you know, uh, naive, ignorant hillbillies who just go, uh, the Bible believes it, uh, I believe it. The Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Um, problems of faith uh, cut across conservative and progressive lines, in my experience. And it might look a little bit different for different sorts of people, but it does cut across lines. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you talk about, in the beginning of the book, how a lot of people leave the faith because of you say like a third of young young adults right leave the church because of of doubts and things like that. now I wonder when we're talking about doubts Tim Keller gave a talk at Google right because I think one of the employees invited him 
because he was a Google Books author, he could come and talk. He gave this talk about his book, Reason for God. And he said, it's a really interesting talk on YouTube. He said, there's three ways, you know, three things that are involved in belief, right? There's an intellectual component, right? Is this compatible with my worldview? There's an existential component, right? Which is why suffering drives as many people to faith as it does from faith, right? Like there's a head and heart, like there's an intellectual existential. And the third thing is sort of, he's learned from sociologists of knowledge, right? Like there's a group dimension to belief and doubt, right? Like when he says, you know, when people, when people say, well, you wouldn't be a Christian probably if you were born in Tibet, he usually says, well, yeah, you probably wouldn't be an atheist if you were born in Madagascar, right? So, so I'm wondering when you're thinking about doubt, how, how do you, how do you parse those components out because because you could you could sort of have firm footing in one and, and loose footing in the other right absolutely and i think that is really great to pull out because most um i think most western people think they're a lot more rational than they actually are you know kind of being heirs of the enlightenment and so when people talk about doubt a lot of times they act as if it's strictly a very cerebral rationalistic thing where i just don't know if certain things add up does the resurrection really make sense um but on, on a root level, doubt is a very emotional thing. Like certain answers may make good rational sense, um, but they just don't feel right to us. Uh, and so I think owning that's a really important component of really sorting through your doubts because there's no thing, in my opinion, I mean, even I'm, I think Tim's point stands. But in my experience, it's really hard to actually divide those things like that. They all mix together. I don't know that there's a strictly rational doubt or a strictly emotional doubt. I think it's a little bit more of a combination always for people. Um, and when we pretend like it's strictly rational, I just think we give ourselves too much credit for how objective we are. And that was one of the great strengths of postmodernism um, was it, it helped us understand that some of the things that we took for obvious objective truths are actually incredibly subjective. Uh, and there's no such thing as a purely objective person who has a view from nowhere. So I think our doubts, in other words, are always a little bit emotional and a little bit intellectual. Yeah. And, you know, Leslie Newbigin, the great missionary and sort of missional theologian of the 20th century, said, says that the congregation is the hermeneutic of the gospel, right? The community is how the gospel is interpreted. And so I think a lot of people doubt, doubts and struggle with faith, right, are exactly that in our context, right? That there's not just the nuns, but the duns, the people that, that their faith in, has not completely eroded, but they can't integrate it with traditional religious institutions and communities. And so there's kind of, it's not the intellectual existential thing, but it's the being able to join up with others who share the faith that keeps them from a vibrant faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. One of the things that I went through when, when I kind of had my, and I've had more than one, but a particularly difficult crisis of faith was I was a pastor at the time. And as a pastor, I couldn't just, you know, walk away at <laughs> that moment. I needed to sort through some things in my livelihood, honestly, and obviously depended on it. Um, and so I had to keep showing up. And, and one of the virtues, though, of having to keep showing up is that I discovered that for at least a time, um, other people could believe for me and their belief could carry me. And even when I didn't believe, I, I believed in their belief and I felt their belief and their belief carried me along until my faith and my belief was kind of revived. And so I do completely agree that what a lot of people are going through is you know, and there are a lot of tough issues that the church isn't clear on. And Jesus made it really clear in John 17 that in order to be credible, in order for the gospel to be credible, uh, Christians have to be one. 
Christians have to experience deep abiding community. And so I do think that a lot of people have ended up walking away from faith because they didn't find a church community where they felt they could be honest with their doubts or one that matched up enough with what they believed. Uh, And that's where I think, honestly, progressives and conservatives could both learn from each other a bit and learn how to stick it out um, even when they don't agree on everything. Yeah, it's It's interesting. interesting. One of the things I've learned learned from Jewish Jewish friends and colleagues, colleagues, my friend Mark Oppenheimer says, you you go to, and we're even in an ultra-Orthodox synagogue on Shabbat, the good chance half the men praying don't believe in God. And my term for that is believing isn't so intricately woven into belonging, where for a lot of especially conservative Protestants, Christianity in general ties belief and belonging together a lot, but especially in the the kind of conservative Protestant world that that it seems you've come up in, they're almost equated. So if you you mention your doubt, you're put on the bad prayer list, right? We'll pray for you. That's great. No, yeah, I've never heard it put like that. It's fantastic, though. But, you know, it seems that like in any community, whether it's Jewish, Muslim, Christian, vegan, whatever, there's like, you know, eight, 10 percent of people that are going to be true. They're true believers. They're just not plagued yeah. with those things. They're, they're going to be joiners and believers in any. And there's eight, 10 percent. They're probably perpetual skeptics, even though they still want to be in the community. Absolutely. But they're, they're the doubters. They're the devil's advocate. And then the 80 percent is usually somewhere in between. In the beginning, you talk about this great passage in Matthew 28, depending on how you translate. It's like they're believing doubters. The disciples are worshiping and doubting or worshiping doubters. Most people are somewhere in that 80%, right? And the problem is, like, we have churches that seem to normalize either extreme. If you're in a conservative church and you doubt, it's demonized. If you're in a more progressive church, if you're not doubting all the time, you're not avant-garde, right? Absolutely. You're a naive simpleton. Um, and, And that's where I really do think that conservatives and progressives desperately need each other. Maybe never more so than we do right now. Um, because, um, I, I do think that doubting has become avant-garde in a lot of circles. Um, and there are some things that should make us doubt. I mean, one of the things I say in the book is that evil should almost make you lose your faith at some point. Um, but by the same token, um, you know, the endless skepticism, cynicism, and I've been down that route. You probably have too. A lot of people listening have, man, it is at the end of the day, it feels great and it's cathartic, but it is so boring and so cynical that I do think there are ways where we need our more conservative brothers and sisters to kind of push us to, you know what, every once in a while, rub a little dirt on it, show up. I know you don't completely believe, but hang in there. Um, and you'll probably find that you actually do believe more than you thought that you believed. If you could get out of that, you know, skeptic quagmire where sitting around bemoaning the world's endless sadness, um, just kind of gets you to a point where you're paralyzed and you don't want to do anything. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think that se- that seems right. And it, it's interesting too, you know. In Brian Garrish, who's a Reformed theologian, one of his la- he's an older guy now. One of his last books was a, a brief dogmatics and outline, but he talks about elemental faith and how Christianity kind of builds on elemental faith. But this elemental faith he talks about that we all need as people is this sense that the 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 natural world sort of is orderly and that the, the human society is moral. Otherwise, we can't do things like science. We can't do things like build societies. And when that, when skepticism gets rampant, like it is in our culture, right, we're seeing a crisis of almost elemental faith where people don't just have a tough time believing God, but have a tough time believing in institutions and government. And there's a kind of ugly populism that seems to rise from some of those kinds of crises of faith that are even outside the church. 
Yeah, I, I absolutely agree that I, I felt before, and this is stuff David Bentley Hart, who's a huge influence on me, has said before that I don't think Western people, heirs to the Western heritage, I don't know that we would even know what it means to not believe in God. We're, we're so deeply conditioned by the idea of God and everything that the idea of God provides, those things you just mentioned, like the, the belief that what we perceive actually maps onto reality accurately. You know, like a lot of beliefs that we so take for granted, we don't even know what it would be like to reject them. And now we're, we're trying to, and I think the lie is that, um, you know, uh, nonpartisan objective reason can basically give us all the same things Christianity had given us or just religion, not even Christianity, but just religion had given us. But I, I think it's pretty obvious that the secular project um, utterly fails to give us some of these ideals that we hold so dearly. Um, and that a secular project works so long as it has religious capital to borrow, but eventually it won't have that capital anymore. And I don't really know what happens with things when that happens, but I think we do see that at different parts of Western society right now. Yeah, and it seems like you don't appreciate the capital you're borrowing until the, the until the account runs out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because you you can spend it until it's gone. Yes, I mean, there's this great. Peace, you know, it's a famous Dawkins quote where he says, like, uh, you know, the universe is exactly the universe we would expect if there was no meaning, no purpose, no joy, no whatever. And yet, you know, here's Dawkins using words like meaning and joy and purpose like he knows what they mean. But I'm not sure that they have any coherent meaning without um, some sort of transcendental grounding, whatever that is. And it's always been religion. Um, but I don't know that secularism has anything to replace it with. Yeah, you have a story from David. Foster Wallace in one of the ellipses in your chapter where there are two fish swimming and, and somebody asks them about the water and they're like, water, what's that? But very often we, we run around using words like meaning and purpose and things like that without a sense of how, of, of what it takes to invest those things with meaning, right? Absolutely. Like that's one of the, the paradoxes that, and, and again, most atheists or agnostics aren't really like the new atheists who are so vocal. And so that's one of the things I always want to make clear. Most folks are not like them. Um, but, but those folks who talk a lot about how evil, you know, religion has been and all the terrible evil things religion has done. But again, in their worldview, that there really is no such thing as evil. <laughs> you know, it's so it's just kind of a, a preferential <clears throat> statement they're making about they don't happen to like that. But there's no way to ground that it's wrong for someone to murder another human unless you have, again, some sort of transcendental grounding, which has always been religion. And I, I still haven't seen a substitute for religion as some sort of grounding for morality at minimum. Yeah. For people that are listening, they can't see your office like I can because we're talking via Zoom so I can see you, not just hear you. And you have this beautiful picture of the Prodigal Son painting, which is the cover of Henri Nouwen's book, the prodigal son. And you, you talk about that in the introduction of the book and the title of your book, Faith in the Shadows. You talk about how you never noticed when you first encountered the picture, the portrait in the shadows, right? That looks like the mother, uh, that, that there's another figure. And that until you got a high res picture of that, you, you didn't see that. And, and you liken that to the role doubt plays, right? That, that oftentimes we see things through going through those periods in the shadows that we really wouldn't want to trade in for just times in the light. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, it, I, I liken it to um, Paul's Damascus Road experience where he 
he gets knocked off the horse and Jesus appears to him. He's got these companions, right, who are with him. And they kind of hear something and they see Paul get knocked off the horse, but they don't see the angels. You know, they don't get a clear message of what has happened. And so they see that something has happened and they see that Paul sees something, but they don't see it themselves. And uh, that's what faith has been like for me a lot of time. Um, it's, it's me seeing that something is happening, but I don't see it directly. I see that other people are seeing things. Um, and when you get to that place and you're in the shadows um, and faith doesn't come as, as naturally for you, it's not a fun place to be. I mean, <clears throat> this book is not a book trying to encourage people to doubt because it's a miserable experience when you get caught up in it. But there are things you learn there where faith is no longer natural for you that I think are unique and precious and can sustain you for a really, really long haul. And so, for example, for me, kind of back to what we were just saying, <clears throat> one of the things I discovered is that um, being a Christian makes evil in the world almost unbearable. Because when you realize how much just relentless, pitiless suffering there is in the world, it becomes almost incoherent to believe in a God of infinite goodness, which Christians do. But the only thing worse than having the problem of evil is probably not having the problem of evil. You know, imagine not being able to call the the torture and murder of a child evil because, again, your, your worldview doesn't allow for a real category of evil. It's just something that happened. And that's the kind of catch-22 we find ourselves in. Sometimes it's too much to have faith, but for the most part, I think it's too much not to have faith. Yeah, you have a great discussion in your book about evil. And I—, I, I you. I was struck that you talk about two thinkers that have lost sons, C. Everett Koop, who is actually went to 10th Presbyterian here in Philadelphia, and, and uh, Nicholas Walterstorff, who his book Lament for a Son is one of the best books on loss that I've ever read. It's just fantastic. But these two, for you, represent kind of two approaches to the reality of evil. Koop is sort of like, hey, I lost my son in this climbing accident. God ordained it. You know that his steps were ordered on that day, and it's hard, and I struggle with it. But you know, I comfort in the sense that there's order and control. Whereas Walter Storff is, you know, there's that great line in his book: "The tears of God are the meaning of history." Right? I mean, that that he sees God as a fellow struggler, almost in face of evil and the things that that seem to rob life of of, of joy and fullness. And, and, and I mean, you want to put those things in conversation with each other because you say that there are echoes of both in the Bible, right? Yeah, I, I think a lot of times when we approach this issue and we go to Scripture, we, we want to come out saying, hey, the Bible clearly teaches that God ordains evil ultimately for His glory and our good, our usually meaning the elect, or, um, you know, evil is a result of freedom in the world. Freedom was a necessary condition for love. You know, so those are the two kind of big classic trains of thought in Christian history. And, you know, I've just come to the point, man, where I've gone round and round and round with all the biblical arguments about it and which one's right. And I think at, at this point, it would just be so foolish to deny that you can clearly teach either one from Scripture. And you can try to synthesize them, but I've found every synthesis wildly uh, unconvincing. And so I think it is truest to the biblical text to say, you know what, <clears throat> either of these perspectives can absolutely be said to be a biblical option, a way that the writers of Scripture, through countless little bitty stories, have compiled these big stories that try to make sense of how evil exists in the world. And not just Scripture, but on down through church history, both of these perspectives have you know faithful Orthodox interpreters, and they have a place within Christian Orthodoxy, even though I don't think they can both be true, and we ultimately kind of have to decide which story we think is most faithful. Yeah, you talk about this sort of 
classic theodicy problem a little bit in the book. You know, you list these things that that God is. You get this picture that God through the Bible is powerful, is sovereign, is powerful, good, loving, and that evil's real. And rather than kind of systematize those. There are just stories that seem to affirm all of them, and 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 there are just stories alongside each other as opposed to a system that that integrates. And I hear you saying we, it, it, we're better off with the stories than to try to you know trade all of the trade all those accents for one sort of harmonization. Yeah, I mean, I, at minimum, I think everyone could agree that if if God had wanted to make the Bible. Um, a perfectly clear textbook of systematic theology, God had it well within God's power and rights to do so. Uh, But God chose not to do that. And so given that God chose us to give this enormous jumble of, at minimum, not clearly uh, harmonious stories, in some places maybe contradictory in the way that they explain God's relation to evil, then I think we just have to take it as it is and believe that there's something accomplished by these very unclear, complex stories that isn't accomplished by an perfectly obvious, uh, systematic theological textbook. That's not the book God wanted to give us. Do you find as a pastor, you kind of have to relearn theology? I mean, Friedrich Schleiermacher, the great 19th century kind of modern Protestant theologian, you know, said that all his theology, it's all theology of lived Christian experience in a sense. So he says like creation ex nihilo really isn't theology to him because it doesn't have to do with the the piety of the Christian life, you know, it's something for metaphysicians or philosophers whether creation, whether matter and things existed before, or you know, or eternally, or they were just whipped up out of nowhere. Now he says providence is absolutely essential. The the sense that this whole thing makes sense somehow, and 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 that it was all about producing Christ. If you don't have that, the whole thing collapses. And I mean, I wonder, are there sort of a hierarchy of beliefs that you have to learn pastorally? These are the things that people can't live without. And then certain things which people are taught in seminaries or by their favorite theologians really on the ground are not that essential. Yeah, it's it's funny. So my my first book was called Young Restless No Longer Reformed and dealt with Calvinism and my transition in it and then out of it. And, and one of the things you discover is that most people just don't think about it that much. And, you know, they, they have certain what you would call Calvinist impulses and reflexes in some ways. And then they have certain open theist and Arminian <clears throat> and just good classical kind of Christian orthodoxy impulses. And they just kind of let them all exist beside each other and grab from any of them kind of as they have need. Um, and so I do think that there's this sense in which the, the most important things that I think you can teach people or so I've learned as a pastor First of all, is to pray, and like the, the you know that's Eugene Peterson's great line. My, my primary task as a pastor is to teach people how to pray. Um, <clears throat> there are questions about prayer and how it affects God if God's already ordained all things and this, that, and the other. But but at rock bottom, what's most important is that people understand that they should pray, and not just that people understand that they should pray. But as a pastor, I, I constantly put people in situations where they're forced to pray or be around praying. Um, and then in addition to that, honestly, you know Jesus. Um, one of the things I talk about in the book is. Uh, Christian Christianity and obviously Christian theology um, grew out of this lightning strike that was the life and person of this man named Jesus from Nazareth, uh, a man who was born a peasant in this tiny corner of the Roman Empire who lived a beautiful life but wielded no army or any political power, and yet he ended up literally changing the world because of the beauty of the life that he lived. And so you go back to that, that event, and everything else is what I would just call thunder. You know, it's echoes of that event. And so when it gets really complex and you don't know what to do with it, 
You need to go back to the lightning. You go back to the singularity that was the life of Jesus of Nazareth, and it's still just as beautiful and compelling and persuasive as it ever was. Yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, what did Emerson say, that the foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of the narrow mind? I mean, I, I think a, a sort of foolishly consistent theology might be the hobgoblin of narrow or, or fragile faith. I think you got to know when to back off. You know, and that's, you know, different people would, you know, so let's say my Calvinist friends, <clears throat> they back off when it comes to well, how could God unconditionally predestine people to hell for sins he ordained they commit and still be good. And they back off and pull the mystery card. We all have to pull it at some point. Um, but I, I do think there's this place to know. And that's why like, even with evil, like at the end of my explanation for evil, uh, I pull the mystery card and basically pull what Walter Storff does in his book, Lament for a Son, where he says something to the effect of, um, instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. And at the end of the day, the only credible uh, remedy for evil in the world will be eschatology. We're trusting that God will sort it out one day. And um, that's really the best we can do when everything's said and done. There's a, a author that's been really helpful t- to to me, Tomas Alika, Czech uh, priest, psychoanalyst, theologian. And in the ellipsis to his book Patience with God, he he's, he quotes this Coptic layman, Adele Bastavros, and Bastavros says, patience with others is love, patience with self is hope, and patience with God is faith. And he says that, you know, what he finds that atheism and fundamentalism have in common is their impatient forms of faith that have a tough time with mystery. I mean, is that, and that seems to be a refrain throughout your book, the, the appreciation for mystery is essential if you're going to have a faith that can handle the interplay of believing and doubting. I think that's so incredibly well said, and that if there's anything we've learned throughout the history of, of, of the church, it's that faith is inevitably this journey from innocence to doubt to kind of dot, 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 <clears throat> and it's up to us to decide what comes next. At some point, we all lose the innocence of our faith. You know, a loved one dies or a prayer goes unanswered or you know, whatever, you see something terrible happen. And you have to decide whether or not you're going to either, A, just walk away from your faith, <clears throat> B, shove the doubt down and ignore it in the hopes that it'll magically go away if you kind of suffocate it with inattention. But what typically happens when you do that is your doubt just goes stronger and it ends up swallowing up your faith. Most people who I see leave faith are not people who have doubts, but it's people who refuse to be honest about their doubts until it was too late. And then the third option, if you don't want to walk away from your faith or become a fundamentalist who sticks your head in the sand, is to embrace the place of mystery in Christian faith. I think it's Callisto Ware, who I quote in the book, who says, "Uh, it's not the task of Christianity to provide easy answers to every question, but to make us progressively aware of a mystery. God is not so much the object of our knowledge, but the cause of our wonder. And I think that's where you have to land eventually, or else you'll walk away or have a thin faith that's not worth keeping anyways. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcasts projects i've got in the works so i invite you 
to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. Yeah, I wonder, as I was reading your book, I was thinking about Luther and the whole law gospel dynamic and this idea that, you know, drastic over simplification, you know, the law says do and the gospel says done, you know, and, and, and this the sense where, where faith is a law. It, it, it ultimately, it's something that, you know, I mean, you know, with the law, you, you ultimately, somebody says, don't step on the grass, you want to step on the grass. I mean, it, the law has this burdensome sort of effect, right? And it, and it often increases the trespass. It seems like when, when there's a kind of legalistic faith that says do, <laughs> then ultimately you, you wind up, sometimes it's good for anxiety management because it gives you stuff to do for a while, but ultimately it crushes you as opposed to a faith that's about reception of a gift. Right, that that seems to change how you deal with with moments in light and the shadows. Absolutely, I mean, I, I think that dynamic that we've all experienced when we have doubt is um, it's almost like you're trying to convince yourself that that you believe is what you feel like you're supposed to do is convince yourself. And and I know as a pastor, there have been moments where I feel like I'm going around trying to offer all these convincing arguments and being the hands and feet of God <clears throat> because God can't be bothered to speak up for God's self. I mean, I really do feel like that sometimes. Like, I, you know, you're God's press secretary there to say all the things that God can't be bothered to say for God's self. And so I, I think there's this point that— If God had Sarah uh, Huckabee Sanders, <laughs> there would be no doubt. Look, there's no problems in the world. There's did. no pro- there's no evil. One. All right, reporters, <laughs> just like Joe, be silent, listen. All right, read evil, the book. It's fantastic. Fake news. Fake news. Fake, evil, evil is fake news. Fake news. Um, yeah, no, I think I, I got to this point where I really felt like, again, I was trying to convince myself that I believed. And that's crazy. Like, if, if God really is true, if Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, if, if Jesus really is beautiful, then I, I shouldn't have to try to convince myself that something is true. Right, that there's nothing virtuous in the philosophical, psychological ruse that is you being able to convince yourself that something is true. Right, if it's true, then we have to trust God at some point to come through and prove God's self to us. But I think a lot of us are afraid that God can't be trusted to do that, so we don't give God the chance to prove God's self, and instead we try to convince ourselves because we're afraid that if we didn't. It might all fall apart. God might not need Sarah Sanders, but wouldn't you, as a pastor, like to have her sometimes? Like when people are absolutely, I would. About the Just forward all Look, my he emails. Made all to her. the right decisions. <laughs> Our vision is great. The church is the best it's ever been. And if you were a faithful member, you'd say it. Next question. I mean, Sarah Sanders would be such a, a she great would. secretary. She'd be perfect. Church. Yep. She'd, she'd be I don't think we could afford her, but we'll no, see. no, no. The great uh, biography of her. Uh, 
a long bio piece. I think it was in the New Yorker. She 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 says, you know, like it's all about her faith. That's why she's doing. What she's doing, <laughs> hey, man. Hey, if anybody has faith, it's her. I'll give her that much. She does. She does. Yeah. One of the things you talk about in your book that I was I was wondering if you would hit on this is is evolution and and sort and and what it, it how you can be a modern person and believe in the story that modern science tells about origins and still have a a, a belief a christian belief in god and, and and god being at the heart of the cosmos so i you know it, you say that one of the things that i think is the most important thing you hit on is how it changes how we have to view the fall right which i i i think this is something really helpful in your book and you explain it really well uh, i appreciate that i feel like that's one of the parts of the book i put the most work into um because I know that that's tricky for people. So when it comes to um, you know science and, and faith, the fundamental issue that you, you bump into is you know do we have to read Genesis one through two literally? Um, Makes for better theme parks if you do. It certainly does. You go visit the ark. Um, <clears throat> I think it's really clear that at at minimum we don't have to read it literally. I would of course go further and say I, I think it's quite obvious we're not supposed to read it literally. And again, <clears throat> biblical, the best biblical interpreters throughout history have told us that we don't have to read Genesis 1 and 2, literally. That idea is really what, more what of a... What about Ken Ham? Where is Ken Ham in your, in your list of... And this is, of course, the author for our listeners that don't know, or the, or, or the creator of the, the Creation Museum and the Noah's Ark Museum, right? So I mean, he's not in your top 10 list? He would not be in my top 10 list of faithful uh, biblical exegetes, especially if Genesis wanted to. No, what I found is the people who claim that um, you know the, the earth is clearly 6,000 years old are pre-committed to a rigid biblical literalism, especially of Genesis 1 and 2. So they've already decided what the science has to say because they've already decided what Genesis 1 and 2 has to say. And so it leads to horrendous science um, that um, honestly makes Christian faith look incredibly not credible to the rest of the world. So, but all that say, we don't have to read Genesis 1 and 2. Literally, all the best interpreters have told that throughout history. It's only been the last 200 or so years that this rigid biblical literalism of Genesis 1 and 2 has become really mainstream, and mainly just in uh, evangelical circles, like most Catholics and Eastern Orthodox do not have the problem with science that Protestants have. Um, so you move past that, though, uh, and you say, well, well okay, you know, uh, Genesis 1 through 11 doesn't have to be taken literally. There are, I think, some legitimate questions to be asked about the way modern science findings that, A, there were never two people, you know, that just existed at some point. There were probably never less than, I think, 50,000 people is what a lot of genetic testing has told us. Um, obviously, the earth is, is way older than we thought. And so what do you do with this doctrine of the fall if you don't have a literal Adam and Eve that fall at some point? <clears throat> so uh, I think one way to remedy it is to see the fall as something that is gradual, episodic, and social, as opposed to instantaneous um, and individual. And so humanity at some point comes to some sort of increased religious awareness, right? And we know that humanity did that by going back and looking at cave drawings, you name it. There's this increased religious awareness as humanity kind of progresses, as our brains grow larger, etc. At some point, <clears throat> humanity becomes capable of whatever we want to call a more deliberate relationship with God. So that would be the point at which we would say God enters into covenant with humanity. <clears throat> um, Humanity eventually gets to a point where they can sin and not just do wrong. So, for example, 
uh, I don't know that any of us would say that like a, a, a tiger killing, you know, a gazelle, I guess it would be a lion killing a gazelle, would be an act of sin. You know, it's violent, but it's just a tiger doing what a tiger knows how to do. And the tiger can't really. What about Trump's kids killing a tiger? <laughs> yeah, sinful. I think Trump's kids <laughs> are aware enough morally where they should know better. Maybe they're not aware morally. Could be. Who knows? Maybe, be they have, maybe they complete ignorance. I mean, maybe they don't have a moral compass. <laughs> So big idea would be um, eventually humanity gets to a point where they are aware enough of this covenant they're in with God that they know better. And so at that point, their rebellion becomes sin. Um, and so it is a historical fall in a certain sense. It's something that really happened, but it didn't happen with two people in an instant, but rather with a community that is humanity over time. And I think that does everything the doctrine of the fall needs to do from a biblical and theological perspective without having to go back to this idea that's just not tenable anymore, that there were two humans, um, that there were ever just two humans on the face of the planet. Yeah, it seems like you, you, you're making the point, right, that, kind of, that creation's goodness doesn't lie in its original perfection, but in its perfectibility. It's the kind of place that where it like like it it's it's its goodness lies in the fact like the fact that the lion eats the lamb doesn't mean it's not good. It, it, its goodness lies in the fact that it can become the place by God's grace where the lion lays down with the lamb. It, 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 the, the, it's you have to have a kind of developmental view of what goodness means, not a sort of static view in the beginning. And anything short of the beginning is sort of a, a, a really destructive mess of the plan. Yeah, and and to just realize that even in you know the garden story. You know, before the fall, the serpent's there saying not nice things about God. And so even in, in Eden, at least as it's quote unquote documented in scripture, it's not a place of sinless perfection. It, it's not. It's prior that there are things in creation that are already wrong and crooked um, before the fall. And so how do we make sense of that? Well, you know, the fall of angels and demons and principalities and all that's in scripture in various places. It's kind of vague, but it's all there. But at minimum, I think scripture clearly teaches that Eden is not a state of sinless perfection that only falls once Adam and Eve sin. Yeah, I wonder how much a healthy faith needs demythologizing. You know, I mean, you think of somebody like St. Anselm who writes, why did God become human in, I guess, the 11th century? You know, some of what he's dealing with is trying to make sense of the cross and human sin. That a lot of the stories people are telling by then were just made no sense. Like God's fooling the devil. He baits a hook like Jesus is the worm and the death. So so he's like, this is all just silly and nonsense. And so he was, I mean, we look at him as a great and rightfully so a great Orthodox doctor of the church. And yet he's poking holes in a lot of mythology that faithful believers at the time really clung to. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's important to understand that faith has always evolved while staying true to certain core roots. Um, and so when we ask tough questions and, and we go back and, and say, well, you know, um, modern genetics is telling us that the, the human population could have never been under about 50,000. Uh, we've been given a really good precedent for going back to scripture and saying, you know what? Uh, what would it look like to interpret Scripture still faithfully? What sort of wiggle room is there um, to make room for these findings of modern science that appear to be obviously true? St. Augustine, who's you know kind of the pillar of Western Christianity, 
has a couple of great lines where, where he says, you know, if, if science um, had proved something to be obviously true <clears throat> that seems to contradict the literal meaning of Scripture, then we should go back and see if we were actually supposed to interpret Scripture literally. Right? And that's Augustine back in the fourth century, you know, years and years before we have the science that we do now. And so, uh, you know, I, I actually think the church, sadly enough, has had a regression when it comes to science and our openness to science, because the church used to be the place where all the best science was done. You know, I mean, Galileo, all, all these people, they were Christians, but we've given up the sciences uh, over the last couple hundred years um, and forced people to make some decisions between faith and science that they should never have to make. Yeah, it's mostly around biology. It's, it's interesting, right? Because you, when theologians and cosmologists and physicists talk, a lot of times the tension isn't as thick as when it's biology and, and people studying origins, right? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of it really does come down to um, <clears throat> literal reading of Genesis 1 and 2 and um, Genesis 3 as well with a, a literal fall with a literal Adam and Eve, two people, a few thousand years ago. And once you let go of that, you, you realize that there's nothing to be threatened about when it comes to science um, and that there's actually an enormous... Um, I think really helpful space for Christians to walk in and make really good, you know, apologetic is probably the right word, arguments for the deep coherence of Christianity if you let go of some of those other things. There's this great quote by Hans von Balthasar in a book called Love Alone is Credible. He says, neither religious philosophy nor existence can provide the criterion for the genuineness of Christianity. In philosophy, man discovers what is humanly knowable about the depths of being. In existence, man lives out what is humanly livable. But Christianity disappears the moment it allows itself to be dissolved into a transcendental precondition of human self-understanding and thinking or living, knowledge or deed. and then he, he gets into the beauty of Christ and thinks that like revelation, there's no per- perfect analogy, but, but what we love is beautiful and what is beautiful to us becomes something we love. And, and, and you sort of say like th- that there's an aesthetic almost experience that transcends any argument. Is that fair? Th- that, that ultimately the, the, the beauty of the truth is what will sustain you more than any sort of airtight argument. Absolutely. When I got kind of at the lowest point in my crisis of faith. And I literally thought I was just going to have to walk away. I mean, there was a moment or two where I I might have kind of walked away again as a Western person. I don't know that I even would know what it means to not believe in God, but I, I got about as close as you can get. And what brought me back was, again, this belief that it's almost a reverse Pascal's wage um, in that if even if it were proved to me <clears throat> beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus was not the truth, I'd, I'd rather choose Jesus than the truth. Because if the truth is that there really is no truth, then I think Jesus offers us the path toward living the most beautiful life possible in this very brief existence we're given here on planet Earth. And so I would rather be wrong about Jesus than right about anything else. And that was, for me, what I needed to just kind of keep me in faith and keep me moving forward. And other arguments and other things tended to start to make more sense and the doubts went away. But but that is the thing that when push comes to shove, I think will always keep me in the faith. Um, Jesus is too beautiful to walk away from. It's the best option that I have. Um, and, and I think for this particular kind of age we're in right now, it's probably the strongest apologetic argument we can make. Um, you look at kind of the evolution of apologetics over the years, you know, in the early history of the church, it was all historical, you know, like, well, I knew a guy who Jesus, you know, healed, or this guy, my great aunt actually saw Jesus resurrected. And that was very compelling. But now we're- Augustine, Augustine will say, you don't think, uh, you know, people can burn in hell for eternity. I saw a roast, a, a duck burn for three days. Yeah, you got no clue. <clears throat> yeah. So, 
those historical arguments aren't as persuasive to us anymore because we can't talk to Bob's aunt who saw resurrected Jesus. And then in the Enlightenment, you know, all the arguments get very rational, you know, and you got these cosmological arguments and uh, what's the one, uh, the ontological argument, you know, all these things that are supposedly so obvious. And Which is one argument, like, philosophers still kind of take seriously. Right? No, it's, right. it is it is an interesting argument. The, the idea that if God is, is you know, the most, is the the, the greatest being, being in which none exist. greater can be conceived. Yeah. Yeah. That, that if he doesn't exist, then he's, that, then you can conceive of something greater. That's not right? God. They, they go, oh, the one that exists. And yeah. it's, it kind of, it seems like an intellectual game, but it, it's one that the, most of the other arguments from nature and things like that, are not taken as seriously. That's, that's one that's still actually among professional philosophers. It's it's funny. Somebody, I, it was Norm Macdonald was on Howard Stern the other uh-huh. day. He's like, somebody's saying comedians are uh, modern day philosophers. I'm saying, turns out there are th- like uh, modern day philosophers, <laughs> <laughs> but there actually are these things. But uh-huh. that's you know something that modern day philosophers actually still do take seriously. It is, and it is, and again, like there's some there's something there. But the the really optimistic Enlightenment belief that there are these rational arguments that no rational mind could object to, and if you just come to them with a, a pure ish heart and an open mind, then you'll become a Christian. You know, within the next ten minutes, that's all kind of been exposed, um, and we realize that there's no such thing as being objective at the end of the day. So, all that to say, I think given where we are at now, the thing that is most persuasive to people is the beauty of Christian faith the moral beauty of Christian faith grounded in the beauty of the life that Jesus of Nazareth lived. Uh, And interestingly enough, like that was the allure of Christianity from the beginning, you know? And so this is really just a return to what sparked this whole Christ event. Yeah. I I almost wonder if the, you know, Nietzsche said that psychology will replace theology as queen of the sciences and like almost everything else. He, he predictively, he was a genius, but I wonder if, that is this space where we see the echoes of God more today in the sense of, you know, you look at everything we know about human development. If you get acceptance as a gift from zero to two with no strings attached, life will go much better than if you get it as acceptance as a reward for pleasing your, your you know, source being your, your, your mom and then later your parents. Or we think about everything someone like Brene Brown teaches about vulnerability, you know, and, 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 and then Jesus saying, you know, if you lose your life, you'll save. It. I mean, it seems like so much of what you see today in in a lot of psychological discussion it is seems to validate some of these truths that are at the heart of this movement in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. I think the the moral we'll call it the moral coherence and the moral beauty of Christian faith has been only you know more and more validated by advances in psychology, sociology. Um, what's the Jonathan Haidt? wrote oh, the, uh, the righteous mind. Oh, yeah. such a good book i mean one of the yeah, best yeah, interesting guy. best yeah, books yeah. I, i've read over the last few years um and he makes this you know incredible stellar and he's not a i, I would assume he would he's an atheist still is he still uh, an atheist yeah, yeah. yeah he's, I, I couldn't he's, tell. he's he's like i was raised in a reagan hating liberal atheist secular tradition, and i'm still pretty much that but <laughs> but he's willing to admit that it's it's quite obvious that religion is good for us you know that it's good for communities that it's a social bonding agent um, all, all these things. And so I just think across the board, even a, again, among people who do not believe in God, it's quite clear that the moral coherence and beauty of Christian faith is something that we reject at great peril to Western society and really what it means to be a human at rock bottom. See, I had someone on the podcast a few weeks ago, Michelle Margolis, who she's at Penn in the political science department. And she has 
done some research on how basically it's not so much religion driving politics, but politics driving religious decisions now, So such that when you've made your partisan decisions, you make them earlier than when you re-engage religion. So people in sort of second phase young adulthood who are hardened partisans then are sort of thinking about family. And, and if they were raised in a religion or thinking about connecting to one because of their thinking about family, you know, that becomes the time where they might re-engage it. If they're Republicans, they're much more likely to, to go back to or invest in religious community. If they're Democrats, progressive, they're much likely, much less likely to. And, you know, you see this anecdotally. I, I've seen this on, on Fox. You look at like Fox, the atheists like Greg Gutfeld still defend religion and the Christians on MSNBC are still sheepish to talk about it very often. So I wonder if one of the challenges that we face now is, again, this sociological one where people were were. For so many people, you know, if you're a Republican pollster right now and you're looking at the millennials, it's a nightmare. I mean, demographics, if it weren't for gerrymandering and, and, and sort of setting up systems where the politicians get to get to choose their voters, the Republican Party would be in real trouble right now and still in the future probably will be in trouble. And I wonder with the kind of conservatism that is probably going to fall out of favor in subsequent decades and the church being linked to that i mean how do we deal with doubts that are that are fundamentally political and cultural you know that i don't want to it's not i don't have a problem believing in god or anything but gosh I, the things associated with Christianity yeah do i have so, to vote for trump so if i believe in god repulsive yeah yeah i mean this is the these are the people that that, that celebrate a misogynist kind of person that says they don't need any forgiveness for anything no i, I really think that moving forward one of the things we try to do at my church, I mean, we, I don't know how well we do it, but we try really hard to move beyond even talking or thinking in terms of conservative or progressive and, and try to talk and think and frame our conversation more in terms of faithful and unfaithful. You know, so is this faithful to Christian faith? Is it unfaithful to Christian faith? Uh, if it's faithful, then we do it. And if it means we, we look conservative sometimes, then so be it. If it means we look progressive sometimes, then so be it. And conservative and progressive are, I think they're they're good like postures to take at different times and different situations. But when they become um, kind of stagnatized ideologies that you live in, I just think they're really dangerous. And And that's where I think the church has to move forward is not toward being just less conservative and more progressive and not just towards being, you know, more conservative and less progressive, but but again, honestly, moving beyond those categories of thinking about what Christian faithfulness looks like. Well, for the, for people in any kind of shadow space or afraid of the shadow space, I think your book is a great place to, whether it's political, intellectual, your book's a great place to start to figure out how faith can really thrive in the shadows and, and, and become deeper and more meaningful. So thanks for writing Faith in the Shadows and thanks for spending some time talking to me about it. Very welcome. Thanks for having me, Scott. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find 
all the information there. Thanks to Austin for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Faith in the Shadows. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.